Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I have with me Kelly Way. Kelly is an attorney in copyright and trademark law, as well as estate planning at the law office of Kelly A. Way in Walnut Creek, California. Now, Kelly has served with me on the board of directors for Bay Area Independent Publishers Association and has presented for that organization several times. I know that she is a fantastic resource in this area that we're going to be talking about. And just as a side note, when she's not practicing law, she's often either reading or working on her own novels. Thanks so much for being with me today, Kelly. Absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me. So on our last episode, I was talking about some of the snags that can come up in in the process for authors who are trying to do a do-it-yourself DIY approach. Mm-hmm. And one of those touched on this question about contracts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump right into the deep end and say, why do we need to have a contract, Kelly? Well, the answer there, the really, really simple answer is you have something in writing so that in a year from now, you're not disagreeing about what was agreed on. (laughs) That is the most basic, basic reason to have a contract. It's just so everybody's on the same page, literally, as to what was agreed on. And if you ever have a disagreement that's bad enough that you have to go to a court or arbitrator or anybody else to help you decide what happens next, that document is going to be needed so that they can decide what was supposed to happen. You know, something that happens sometimes in the audiobook world is that we may have a friend who maybe does voiceover or has a microphone. They, you know, they do something in that world and we feel like, oh, I could partner with them. It'll save me money. We're friends. You know, we've just decided we're going to do this project together and it's all going to work out. What might you immediately, you know, red flag for you in terms of the problem with leaving it as, it's all going to work out, we're friends? Just because while one would hope that it does work out beautifully, there are many times when it does not. You may be the best of friends, but that doesn't mean that you don't have different expectations about what's going to happen next or what one is getting out of that deal. And unfortunately, it does happen that people are the best of friends and this sort of thing actually breaks up that friendship because they have some kind of disagreement about what they had agreed on. And then it becomes so divisive that they stop being friends after that. It's unfortunate, but it does happen, which is why it's so important to have that agreement in writing. Right. So once we have it on paper or even in a written form, then at least we all can look at the same piece of paper and hopefully read it the same way. Do we, Are there a lot of uh, challenges around interpretation of what is in an agreement? 
Sometimes it can happen if you're going to a court, then there are industry standards that the court will usually look at to determine what was going on. For example, there was a case with Dr. Seuss uh, suing for copyright infringement, and the original contract was lost. So the court had to go with what was the industry standard at the time that you created this copyrighted work. And unfortunately for Dr. Seuss, the industry standard at the time was that you sold your entire copyright, not uh, just gave them a license. So he ended up losing that infringement case. But that's the sort of thing that would happen in a court case where if the contract doesn't specifically state what we mean by this is, Mm -hmm. then the court is going to fill in the gaps with what is normal for the industry. Okay, so that that kind of suggests to me that in thinking through what would go into a contract that we are really trying to think of like all the different ways that it might be interpreted or misinterpreted depending mm-hmm. on your perspective. Does mm-hmm. that sound does that sound right? Yes, and I I know that a lot of legal contracts are just incomprehensible to lay people and yeah. the cynical people will say that's just to keep lawyers employed, but I like to be optimistic and say that that maybe there are some people out there where that's part of it. But the other part of it is that lawyers are just trying to be extra, extra clear and use this term that maybe lay people aren't as familiar with. But in the legal world, everybody knows what you mean when you say that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, does that suggest then, like, how important is it that you do you need to have an attorney? Is uh, an agreement that's just written between two people and maybe not written by an attorney, is that still legally binding? What do we need to know about in terms of that question? So I would say it can be helpful. Certainly, they know what sort of things to look out for. They know things that often get misinterpreted or issues that often come up. However, while I think it's a good idea, it is not required. As long as you have it in writing with dates and signatures, that's all that's legally required. If you ever had to go to court, that's enough. It's just a good idea just because, again, uh, the lawyers know where the pitfalls are. And while I did say all that about using legal terms, at the same time, the legal industry is moving away from these incomprehensible documents and trying to work more (laughs) towards something that is actually clearer and easier to understand for lay people. Yeah, that's good. All right. So let's say we've got a couple people and, you you know, they want to come up with some agreement. What, first of all, are the things that they should be thinking about in terms of what to put in that agreement, aside from the interpretations, how how whatever they put in there might be interpreted, but like, what are the key elements, would you say? So the core that you need to have in there is what are you agreeing on? So for example, with an audiobook, you want to say that, you know, Becky Parker Geist is hiring this person here that you name and to do the audio recording of Becky's audiobook with the title. Uh, you know, you don't have to necessarily have that much detail, but the more detail, the better. Mm-hmm. But that is the most basic basic is that you are hiring this person to perform this job. And in return, that person is getting money or credit or whatever else that they uh, that they are getting out of this agreement. Mm-hmm. So you got to have at least that much. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And then other good things to include be, like you said, uh, some definitions. Here's what we mean. And another one that might get forgotten is who owns the copyright? Ah, uh, yes. Very good. Yeah, that's one that tends to come up more with, for example, artwork, where there's a mix where sometimes you're just hiring them to do it for you. And other times it's a joint authorship situation. But even in audiobooks, you still want to make sure that it's clear who it is that is creating the work, who's the author of the work, and who owns that copyright. Right. And um, I want to circle back to that in a second and uh, ask you a little bit about the work for hire terminology. Uh, but just in terms of like other components, it seems like maybe we might also want to consider like when someone's going to get paid, are they going to get paid in mm-hmm. full in relation to when they deliver something or, you know, if they're sharing in royalties. Yes, when and how one gets paid is always an important thing to include. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, very good. Great. Well, let's come back to that. So this question, work for hire, uh, is a term that some people are familiar with and others not, but it seems pretty common. So at least in the contracts world, can you explain what it means in this context and any particular rules around that or understandings around that from the legal perspective about work that's being done? So the work for hire doctrine, it is an actual rule in copyright law that if something is work for hire, that the person who hired the creator is the owner of the copyright. So what that means in plain English is that person A or maybe company A is hiring this person B to create something for them. And normally, the person who does the creating, person B, is the author and owner. But in the work for hire situation, because person A is the one that says, I want you to do X, Y, Z, they're directing person B, that makes them the creator and the owner for copyright purposes. Okay. So that could be a useful term for people to at least understand, especially if you're having an attorney help you and you look at that and you go, yeah, what does that mean? So now you've explained it. Thank you. <laughs> Great. So we talked a little bit about, you know, like, do you need an attorney to write your contract? And you said, no, not necessarily. If, let's say, we've got an author and we've got a, a narrator and they've decided they want to work together and, you know, especially maybe they're friends and they would like to retain their friendship <laughs> and not risk it, not put it at risk. Let me put put it that way, because I'm not saying that it will ruin your friendship, but just who should write that agreement, that contract? Should it? Does it need to be the author who's do, hiring that person? Does it? What would you recommend? I'd say the person who's doing the hiring would probably be the best person, just because they have the most to lose if things are decided against them. And that's usually the way it works. For example, publishers are usually the ones that uh, write up the publishing contracts. Uh, Employers are usually the ones who write up the employment contracts. So it seems to be a good rule that the author is probably the person who does that. But on the other hand, if, for example, you're hiring a professional, they might just have a contract on file and the author doesn't have to worry Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And now, is that something that, let's say an author is going to write up the contract and they're not wholly confident that they've included everything. Is that something that they could then 
take it to an attorney just to have them review it? Absolutely. That's certainly a service that I offer. I'm happy to look over draft contracts and see if there's anything missing. I'm sure that other attorneys would be willing to do the same. So that could be a way if you're worried about money to make it a bit more affordable to kind of do the first round and then have an attorney review it rather than having them draft it from yeah. scratch. Great. Great. So let's say we have an author and a narrator. That's the most common scenario. So we could have other people. We could have composers, Mm -hmm. you know, where then we're talking more in, in the world of the art, like you were describing, you know, where there's a composition that's created we, maybe we should come back to that version of a scenario. But let's say for, for right now, we've got an author and a narrator, and they've got an agreement. And then it's to narrate the book. And then it's finished. And the author, having listened to it, goes, oh, wow, you know, now that I hear it, I have this great idea. I could change this. And, you know, this, I could add a chapter. I could do all these other things. And now what happens? What if they didn't include in their agreement, because they didn't think of it, Mm -hmm. what to do if, you know, in a scenario where somebody wants to now change or kind of expand the scope of things? What are their options? Yeah. So, you know, of course, the best thing to do would be to have kind of an addendum if that wasn't already addressed. Just say, you know what, I want to make some changes that are pretty extensive here. And the best thing to do would be to talk to the other persons. Like, how can we work out these changes where it's fair to both of us? You know, that obviously would be the best way to go. And with the best, best way to go being you agree this before there are any changes uh, in the original contract. But barring that, it would simply be a matter of, again, trying to figure out what's fair. Because a lot of times these cases, they get to court not because they're like so earth-shattering, change-the-world kind of cases, but just because the people can't come to some kind of understanding or agreement. Right. Yeah. I think that is so true. I, th- You know, especially in our society, I think that we have kind of been trained around the idea that it's we shouldn't talk about money. You know, that if especially if we feel like we're really dealing, functioning more as just a person, not a business, you know, and many authors don't like thinking of themselves Mm -hmm. as or their work as a business. But Mm -hmm. so we get into this place of, oh, I'm just especially if we're talking to friends who are going to help us out. That challenge around talking about money seems to be a very big issue. Do you have any advice? I I would definitely agree that people feel uncomfortable about it. And so they leave it out when oftentimes that's the biggest thing that can cause issues. Or even just that desire where I don't want to do a contract. That sounds too formal. I want to keep this friendly. Right. I've heard that one too. And uh, you know, it's just, again, sometimes that works out just fine and there's not an issue. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And as a lawyer, I always have to think of what's the worst case scenario of what could happen here. Mm-hmm. And I remember in law school, there was uh, a big case that kind of revolved around that, where it was a movie director who hired a special effects studio. And when the special effects studio was done and presented, they didn't bother to present a bill until they were done. And then the director said, oh, I'm not paying that. This is terrible. But then they took it anyway and they used it in the movie. Uh Uh-oh. 
And yeah, so then the uh, studio, they, they sued them to get their money back. And they all went to court and the court's like, so where's the contract? And the director, I, I just imagine in my mind saying this in a very snooty voice, in Hollywood, we do lunch, not contracts. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually a line in the court's opinion. I assume he actually said that to, uh, to the judge's face. Wow. And the judge says, well, you know, that's all well and good for Hollywood, but that's not how it works in the court system. <laughs> but in the end, it worked out in favor of the director because uh, the, uh, they said, hey, you didn't have a contract and you let him walk off with it. That implies that uh, you're okay with him using it without getting paid. So yeah. I'm sorry, but if you really wanted to get paid, you shouldn't have let him walk away with the uh, with goods. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Some challenging things can happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a cautionary tale. And that's why a lot of times in business, the uh, when payment is due and hasn't been paid, uh, the business will hold on to the product and refuse to do a delivery until they've gotten their money back. Because... Right. Once that item is out there, they lose their leverage. Right, right, yep. And there certainly is a level of trust that goes into any any contractual arrangement. Mm -hmm. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working with authors who have a big goal in mind. They really want to reach out to their audience around the world. We're here to help make that happen. It starts with our pre-production process where we're evaluating and determining what elements of the audiobook we can leverage to both create an excellent listener experience for your listeners, as well as drawing them to your website to engage with you further. It continues on through the production process, making decisions that will enhance and support your big goals, as well as creating a great listener experience. But we don't stop there. Once the audiobook is live, we move on to helping you market your audiobook with the Audiobook Marketing Program. Come check us out at ProAudioVoices.com. To schedule a call to talk about your audiobook project, click on Get Started. Do you have any recommendations, you know, for let's say if you're working with clients who are in this place of like, it's really hard to talk about money, like how might you know, from either side, really, how might they approach this conversation? You know, is it like figuring out, well, what is a range that I could live with initially, like for themselves? And then do they need a mediator to try and help them get to that place? Or what could you, what would you I, advise? I, I would hope that you wouldn't need a mediator at the very beginning right. before you even started doing anything with each other. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say that you would probably want to pitch, you know, how does this sound mm -hmm. and see if the other person uh, thinks that that's fair and reasonable. And if that method doesn't work, as I said, there are industry standards. Uh, so it wouldn't be a bad idea to just look up, you know, what's the going rate for an audiobook narrator right. and kind of use that as your starting point to figure out what would be fair between us. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So it uh, sounds like then really a lot of it that we may be recommending that you just knowing that you're in a process of negotiation and really being clear about that with each other, that you can each sort of mm -hmm. tentatively put out a possibility and see, you know, let 
let it be a conversation, even if it's an uncomfortable one at first, mm-hmm. by having that conversation and coming eventually, however long it takes, you know, two minutes or whatever, that you, when you have that agreement to what that exchange is going to be, financial or credit, whatever that is, that then you can go forward with some confidence about the project. Yeah. I definitely feel it's better to get the uncomfortable stuff out of the way first because, you know, you don't want to be halfway through a major project and then realize that you have a disagreement over something critical. Right. Exactly. And uh, also, just to bring up, you know, you had mentioned the, the credit early on. That is pretty standard in terms of the audiobook industry that you are required to give credit unless the narrator specifically wants to be anonymous and states that, and then, you know, there's some different ways to go around it. But other things that maybe, you know, in this negotiation process, there are other things as well, it seems to me, that could be offered in exchange if if money is either not the most important piece to either party, you know, or just looking at what's of value. I mean, let's say your narrator lives nearby and they really love apple pies. Yeah, maybe that could be part of the negotiation. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember my negotiation class. That was one of the things that they taught us is, you know, don't think of it as a zero-sum game where more for you is less for me. Uh, you always want to think about, you know, they call it expanding the pie. Uh, you know, figure out what's important to them. Maybe money is the bottom line. Maybe that's all that they care about. But oftentimes, you know, it's a big one, but not the only thing. And there may be other things that matter as much or more that you can use so that you give them more of one thing in exchange for more of something else that's important to you. So it's always good to put your creative thinking hat on yeah. uh, to try to figure out other ways that you can make this a value that uh, may not come down to dollars for you or uh, versus dollars for me. Right, right. It seems to me that maybe one of the first questions in entering into that negotiation might be for each party to ask the other, what's most important to you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that would be a great way to start. Yeah, yeah, good. I want to come back to that question about or just that scenario where we have, let's say, a musician who is going to compose music or a song or something for the audiobook, and maybe there's another narrator, you know, but that piece of music, what are some options in terms of that negotiation around rights, licensing, that sort of thing? What might be some different scenarios that they might consider? So let's see, for a musician, again, money is probably a factor. I'm sure that they want to get something monetary, but you could also talk about the credit that you could give them. Uh, Maybe you have some sort of promotional thing that you can do to get their name out there. I'm sure that a lot of musicians, what they really want is another gig from, uh, maybe from you, maybe from somebody else, but you know, something that would uh, be an assurance of future work. And so something like that might be something that they would be open to considering. And I'd say that, yeah, a lot of people that are professionals, a big thing that they're looking for is not just, you know, today's payday, but how can I work this in order to get 
more paydays and maybe even bigger paydays down the road. So maybe you might know somebody that they want to be connected with. Uh, so that could be something that could be a good negotiation point. Oh, that's great. And then what about who is it definitive? Who holds the rights for the music? Or do they have different options about who would keep the rights and as long as it were able to be used in the audiobook? So again, the usual rule is that the person who creates the work, in this case, the music, is the person who owns and authors the copyright. And so if you wanted something different, you would want to have, again, a contract that states who is the owner of the copyright. Is this something where it is their copyright 100% and you're just getting a license to use it? Or is it something where you are the owner of the copyright from day one and they're essentially your employee for the duration of this gig? Right. So if the composer is retaining the rights and then just going to license the use of the music for the audiobook, then that that composer could can use that for anything else that they want to, right? They can make money off it potentially anywhere else. Again, it goes back to what you have in the contract. If you say that it's an exclusive license, then no, they cannot. Uh, but yeah, if you say that it's non-exclusive, then uh, sure, they're free to license it again to other people down the road if that's what they want to do. All right. All right. So very good. Those are some good terms to keep in mind. Exclusive and non-exclusive. We know about those in the in the publishing world, don't we? Mm-hmm. Also, when it comes to the agreement, does it need to be? So I think we're clear it needs to be written in some text mm-hmm. form. Does it does it need to be a physical paper signed copy? There are certain kinds of agreements that have to be in writing. And let's see, think if, you, if it takes longer than a year to perform, it has to be in writing. And if it involves the sale of goods over $500, it has to be in writing. I don't know that either of those necessarily uh, is at play in these kinds of contracts, but I still think it's a good idea. But if you don't want to have it in writing, you want to have it in some kind of permanent format. So it could be an audio recording, for example, that would, something like that would probably work something where you have it on your computer, something like that could work as well. But yeah, the gold standard is in writing with wet ink signatures. Wet ink signatures. Okay. All right. Because we've got all these systems like, you know, DocuSign and DocHub and various other, you know, online systems where we can get that digital digital copy. I think that those online systems like DocuSign, I think those sorts of things would stand up in court. They would consider that to be a writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So we have really covered a lot in in this episode. And I want to thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me and and addressing these questions. I think they're so important and challenging for many folks. So thank you. And could you let people know how they can best reach out to you, find you, contact you so that if they have questions or would like you to review a contract or would like you to help them create a contract, that sort of thing, that they could reach you. Absolutely. So they're welcome to look at my website, kawaylaw.com, where I have a blog and a newsletter with extra information. I also have my contact information there. And just so you have it right here, my phone number is area code 925 
357-8845. And my email address is K-A-W-A-Y at K-A-W-A-Y-L-A-W.com. That's great. Thank you. And we'll put that information in the show notes as well. Again, thank you, Kelly, so much for being here and answering our questions about all these contracts and and copyrights or licensing kinds of questions. Absolutely. Thanks again for inviting me. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.